Here's what Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57, says. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Prepare. The Savior is coming. The last verse that we read, all those who heard of these things laid these things up in their heart, and they said, what then will this child be? That's what we want to answer today. What then will this child be? And we're talking about John, John the Baptist. And the answer is this, prepare. The Savior is coming. We're going to take each of the next four Sundays to think about certain aspects of Christ's coming and think about and acknowledge how that fits in the story God is telling of redeeming lost people from their sin. And what we want to recognize today as we think about that great time in history when Christ was born is John came to prepare that people might be ready that the Savior is coming. Now, if you live on the coast, you might be familiar with tsunami warning horns, sirens that sound. When these sirens sound, it tells you a tsunami is coming. You don't uh, wait till you see a tsunami to run from a tsunami, because at that point, uh, it's too late. The tsunami warning system is intended to communicate bad news. A tsunami is coming, and if you stay where you are, you will drown. But it gives you good news that is this. If you heed the warning, you have plenty of time to prepare so that you can evacuate and avoid uh, the tragedy that is coming as a result of this tsunami. And so prepare, when we're preparing for the understanding that the Savior is coming, John the Baptist was sent as a work of grace by God, as a forerunner, as a tsunami warning, that all would understand the Savior is coming and you need to be ready. The Savior is coming and you need to be prepared. God's grace was on display through John the Baptist as an opportunity for people to be ready for Christ to come, that they might respond to Christ as he was the Savior of the world. Uh, look back a little bit earlier in Luke. Luke chapter 1, um, not earlier. Did I say earlier? Because obviously I meant later. No, let's go earlier. Luke chapter 1, verse 8. That way I can feel like I was right. Luke chapter 1, verse 8. This is what we read there. This is Zechariah before the birth of his son John. This is much earlier. Now while he, that is Zechariah, was serving as priest before God, his division was on duty. And according to the custom of the priesthood, this is verse 9 of Luke 1, he was chosen by Lot, uh, not a guy named Lot. It, 
it was kind of like a dice thing. They rolled dice or bones or uh, they threw rocks into a grid of squares and where the rocks landed told you who won the game. And so this was a game of chance, but really what they did is they left the chance up to God to control. So he was chosen to go into the temple and burn incense. And this was sort of a once-in-a-lifetime sort of thing that this would happen. So the whole multitude, verse 10, of the people, they were outside praying at the hour of incense. Zechariah is inside. Nobody's in there with him, and he's lighting uh, the incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw the angel and, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to call his name John. And you'll have joy, and you're going to have gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Very strange. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the, dis the disobedient and, uh, to the wisdom of the just. Last phrase of this section, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So Zechariah is told you have a son born. His name will be John. He is going to come in the power of the prophet Elijah, and his job is to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The grace of God to send a forerunner to let people know of their opportunity to worship God as he is, prepared for God's arrival. John's birth is miraculous, and the child will be a forerunner to, to the Messiah, a waymaker to prepare the way for the Lord, to go before the Lord and get everybody ready to say, the Savior is here, and here's how you are prepared for the Lord. And of course, this is referring to some Old Testament prophecies. And some of you are chomping at the bit to find out where these Old Testament prophecies uh, are. And your prayers have been answered this morning. Let's turn to them. First one, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Uh, save you from having to find it. We have conveniently placed it on these Screens. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. So the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before John the Baptist, is predicting that one will be born before the Messiah to make straight, to make it clear, how do you find the Messiah? So if somebody was born at that day, they say, how do I find the Messiah? They say, go ask John. He knows the way. And you would go out to John, and he would tell you exactly what it means to be prepared for the Messiah. That was John's whole job, to have everybody ready for when the Messiah was to show up. He was to make way for the Lord, a straight line to find God. If somebody wanted to find God, John would give them the roadmap, and the roadmap was a straight line to Jesus, and he would tell them exactly what that meant and exactly what that looked like. And this was great grace. This was the grace of God, that people would be prepared for Christ uh, when he arrived. It's not lost on us that most, if not, uh, the, or I should say the majority of people, were not terribly well prepared, were they? And so then John's ministry of preparation actually became a ministry of judgment as people rejected him as well as the Messiah. Look at also Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 says, this. Behold, 
I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Malachi and Isaiah together are predicting the coming of John the Baptist to make way the way of the Lord, because the Lord will come suddenly to his temple. And the messenger will delight in Christ's coming and tell people he is here. And so John came, and he prepared the way for the Lord. He went out into the wilderness, and he spoke, and he called people to himself and said, the Savior is coming, be ready. The Savior is coming. He's coming now. It's no longer delayed. The Lord is coming, and you need to be ready. Look at Malachi 3, uh, verses 2 and 3. Here is the question we have as we think about Christ's birth. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and he is like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi, the priests, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So the Bible is telling us the Lord is coming and John is preparing the way, but here is the question, who can endure the coming of the Lord? Because the Lord is coming to refine and to cleanse. How do you refine silver? You throw it into a pot and you turn the heat up really high. And the good stuff will separate from the bad stuff. And the bad stuff is skimmed off. The idea here is a refining fire. The, the fire of difficulty cleanses. And who can endure the difficulty the Lord is going to bring? He is like a fuller's soap. That is the soap that um, hurts when you use it. Sometimes you go to these fancy hotels. I've heard people going to these fancy hotels. No, you go to these hotels and they say, we've got this fancy French milled soap. And it's an exfoliant. You know what exfoliant means? <laughs> this is what it means. They mix sand into a perfectly good bar of soap. And you're rubbing on it. And you say, why, why would you do this? Why would you put grit in what seems to be a perfectly nice bar of soap? Because it's an exfoliant. It's supposed to remove the dead skin, according to uh, the experts on soap that's a pain to use. It scrapes you, and, it, and this is, he said, who can endure the day of the Lord? He is going to refine through fire, and he is going to cleanse like a fuller soap, and he is going to remove all the impurities. Who can possibly endure this? The idea here is when, when the Messiah comes, you need to be ready, otherwise you will not endure his coming. John prepares people for the refining and cleansing, cleansing work of the Lord. And the question is, who can stand on the day of the Lord? Here's the answer that John gives. The repentant. Who can stand on the day of the Lord? Who can endure the refining fire? Who can endure the fuller's soap? Who can endure the cleansing of the Messiah? It is those who are repentant of their rebellion against God. John comes proclaiming a message of forgiveness through repentance. And repentance is just a fancy religious word for saying, I have done wrong and I want to stop doing wrong. I know what I have done is wrong and I want to stop that and turn to what is right. So the grace of the forerunner is opportunity. 
He is going to call us to recognize we need to turn from our rejection of God and His ways and to receive God and His ways and the refining that He brings. The grace of the forerunner is the opportunity to repent in advance of the Lord's coming. And He calls us to be prepared. Prepare the Savior's coming. Here's the thing about prophecy in the Old Testament, even in Malachi chapter 3. The prophets looked at the coming of the Lord, and the, and the Lord is coming twice. He comes once in a baby, born, dies on the cross, raised from the dead, and he takes off. Anybody notice? That was a bit of a surprise. He is going to come again. In fact, he told us quite clearly, I'm going to head out. You're going to continue my work of the kingdom in my absence, and when I return, oh, you'll know about it just like you know when there's lightning in the sky. And so what the prophets were doing, when they looked at the coming of the Lord, they talked about the two of those together. And he said, listen, the Lord is coming. He is coming to bring forgiveness, and he is going to come to bring judgment. So we anticipate the Lord coming again. We call his first advent a fancy term. First advent. We call the next one what? It's even more fancy. Second advent. Look, at I heard someone say it. You're staying up with me. Good. First advent. Jesus is born. Second advent hasn't happened yet, and you still must be prepared. He is coming, and his refining will be completed. And the question you must ask yourself, if at, not at Christmas time, when else, am I prepared for the final refining? Am I ready? The only way to be ready is repentance and faith. I know what I've done is wrong. I have rejected God, and I must have right relationship with God through faith to endure his coming. And the opportunity to respond in faith is not to be put off until tomorrow. Say, I got a few more things to hash out and I'll do religion later. First of all, don't do religion, find Christ. Secondly, don't do it later. I don't know if there will be later. So far, there has been later, but we are not guaranteed another one. And the the ministry of John the Baptist, if you're going to take anything away from this now, is do not put off to tomorrow what you know repentance looks like for you today. What does it mean for you to turn from your own life and turn to Christ for life? Don't wait till tomorrow, because I can't guarantee you tomorrow will come. And some of us as believers are saying, well, thank goodness I'm a believer, and I don't have to listen to this message. Recognize this. As believers, we should not put off till tomorrow what walking in life with Christ looks like today. Don't wait till tomorrow. Say, you know what? Once I get some things ironed out in my life, I'm going to really start focusing my life on my relationship with Christ. I can't guarantee you you're going to have time to do that later. And we are called by the grace of God to take advantage of this opportunity to do today what should have already been done, to turn to God with our whole heart and our whole mind, and all our strength. Be prepared. Grace is for today alone. I cannot give you assurance that you have opportunity to live in grace tomorrow. Say you're going to the beach, and you hear the tsunami warning signs. That turning from the beach, even though it looks nice, and it appears to be getting bigger, that turning from the beach to run for the hills, that is a very simple way of understanding repentance. If I keep going the way I'm going, I will die. I have to turn and go this way in faith that those tsunami warning signs are telling me the truth, and I'm going to go for where life is that's up in the hills. 
And that's what John is calling us to do. I got to stop going down a road of death and turn to Christ for life. So prepare the Savior's coming. The forerunner comes as an opportunity. Secondly, the message of the forerunner is this repent. Repent. John comes as a forerunner and as a herald, and he doesn't come as a herald saying, the king is coming to destroy you. He comes as a herald bringing tidings of peace. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 4. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. I'm going to start reading at the beginning of Mark, Mark 1, 1, and we're going to read through verse 4. It might be up on, verse 4 is probably up on the screen. There's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Mark here quotes both Malachi and Isaiah together. Verse 4, we discover who he's talking about. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of of sins. So John comes as a forerunner with, with God's grace of the opportunity that the Messiah is coming. And secondly, John comes as a forerunner with this message, repent, receive forgiveness of sins. The point of John's job was simply this, to get people to acknowledge that they are sinners and they need to be made clean. To acknowledge they are sinners and they are a savior. John's message was rather depressing. It was simply this. You are a sinner. Come and get baptized. What does it mean to get baptized by John? You acknowledge publicly that you are a sinner, and you repent. So you get baptized, and it's just a way of putting on a big giant t-shirt that says, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner, signed John the Baptist. And everybody would wear these t-shirts. And all the religious folks came down, and they would watch these people being baptized with their long noses turned up to them. Why would the religious people not get baptized by John? I'm not a dirty, rotten sinner. I'm pretty good. I'm religious. I go to church all the time. My family goes to church all the time, and I do some good stuff, and the good stuff I do outweighs the bad stuff. So you've got two groups of people. People being baptized by John, recognizing his message. You are a sinner, and you need to be saved from your sin. Then you've got other folks who don't think their sin is that bad. They say, well, you know, I mean, sure, I should do a few things right. I should get rid of some of my bad habits, maybe exercise a little more. I don't know. I don't need to be baptized recognizing I'm a sinner. I'm not a murderer. I haven't committed genocide. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't stolen from anybody. I haven't kicked a puppy today. I mean, whatever, I mean, whatever your pet sin is. If kicking puppies, though, is your pet sin, I, I don't have an answer for that. I mean, that's, I'm kidding. No, that's theologically inaccurate. So this was John's ministry. He, he calls people and repent, you're a sinner. That was the whole thing. And crowds would flock to him. Why would people flock to John to say they were sinners? Because finally somebody was saying what they knew was true. They had been going to temple their whole life. They had been offering the offerings, but something wasn't fixed. There was still something wrong inside of them. And John finally was giving a message of grace that says, God hears you. The first step to receiving his Savior. The first step to finding the Messiah is to acknowledge you need forgiveness from your sin. If you cannot acknowledge your need for forgiveness, 
you will never find Christ. Because this is the message of the forerunner. To find the Messiah, the, the way to the Messiah, the first step is to say, wow, I, I'm, I'm really, really bad. It's, I sin a lot in not good ways. So we tend to think that religious people are those who do the least bad. What John does is re, uh, re, uh, rewrite the rules, so to speak. He says, no, the people who will be closest to God are those who are most aware of their distance from God. The people who will find Christ most readily are those who recognize they have rebelled against Christ most significantly. And we tend to think it's the opposite. Good people find God, bad people will never find God. And John rewrites the script and says, no, 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 actually it's the reverse. Really, really bad people find God because the call to find Christ is a call of repentance. And good people don't want to repent because good people don't want to admit they need to. The dirty secret is there are no good people. They just haven't figured it out yet. It's not your job to tell them. That's the Holy Spirit's job. So the message of the forerunner is repent. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Why is this a big deal? Because the people of Israel, most, for the most part, wanted a Messiah, but they were not looking for a Messiah to bring them forgiveness. They were looking for a Messiah to bring them hope from all the difficulties they faced. They needed a Messiah to free them from their political bondage. They needed a Messiah to free them from the economic challenges they faced in the Roman Empire. They needed a Messiah to help them deal with some of the racist elements of their culture. They needed a Messiah to deal with a lot of the injustice they faced in a Roman culture. They needed a Messiah that would, would finally get all of these problems fixed. And John the Baptist comes and says, you want a Messiah that will fix your political problems and your social problems and fix your economic problems? This Messiah comes to fix your sin problems. And most of the people of that day said, we don't want that kind of Messiah. We want a different one. So repentance says this. In my default condition, without the help of God, I am offended by God because God does not fit into where I want him to fit. Jesus came and sent a forerunner to make it quite clear Jesus has no desire of figuring out how he fits in your otherwise pretty good life. Jesus is not coming in to see which part of your life sort of isn't feeling quite up to speed, and he's going to kind of shore that up for you. Jesus is coming to say, I've got a place for you to fit into my life. But to do that, you have to turn, that is repent, from all that your life is. And most people were offended by it. I want a God who fits my life, not a God who calls me into his life. How offended were the people of Israel by Christ because he refused to fit into their preconceived notions? They killed him for it. To find God, we must repent, and to find God, we must walk away from that which we think will save us. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. You say, how many other places are we going to turn in the Bible? A whole bunch, so get over it. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. Look at what Jesus does. This is absolutely astounding. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. Why? To be baptized 
by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. You come to me? And Jesus answered him, let it be. For it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. Generally, when the creator of the universe tells you to do something, it's a good idea to do it. And John does. So Jesus is baptized by John. Jesus then is identifying himself with those who are baptized by John. Again, who is being baptized by John? Repenters. And Jesus comes down to John and sees, in essence, two groups. Up on the shore are the people watching the repenters. That's the religious folk. They do their temple duty. They know their Hebrew. They've given their offering. They sin a little bit on the weekend, but nothing that they uh, would really ruin anything. If anybody found out, it might. But, you know, they keep it secret, like good religious people. So you've got those people. They don't need to repent because they're pretty dialed in. And then you've got all these, those people. You know, you know who I'm talking about. They, they tell you about what they did and how they received the forgiveness of God, and it makes you feel awkward. Like, whoa, overshare, dude. Like, simmer down. And those people are being repent, or repenting and turning to, turning to God for forgiveness. And Jesus is repenting, or not repenting, he is baptized by John. Everybody there would have known exactly what he was doing. He was turning aside to those who have rejected repentance and said among the repenters, you are my people. I am with the repenters. I am identified with the sinners. I recognize those who recognize their need of forgiveness. Jesus identifies with those who recognize they need forgiveness. So John brings a message of the forerunner, repent, but the good news is the repenters find a savior because God is pleased with the work of Christ to be baptized by John. Put it this way. Being repentant, having a heart that is willing to say my ways are not God's ways prepares my heart for Christ. How can I be ready for the work of Christ? To be a quick repenter. To be the first to say I was wrong. To be the first to say I'm a sinner. To be the first to say I I need grace today. That is how we are prepared for Christ. When we are ready for his grace by recognizing the nature of our sin. That we have turned from our own life and instead said, I want Christ's life. How do we prepare for the coming of Christ? Turn away from our sinful ways and turn to Christ for new life. Now, some of us are Christians in here. One or two I thought, saw walking. I think they're in the back. <laughs> Look, you're very offended. I'm messing with you. I have no idea. Um, and we say, well, thankfully, I already did that. Whew. Well, this message would be really awkward if I hadn't repented back in 1948 or 1972 or 1996 or last week. This would be really awkward. Here's the thing. I'm talking to all of us, aren't we? Anybody here need God's grace today? If you said no, you're a liar. How do I receive his grace? By being a repenter. By being one who woke up again today, feet hit the ground, said, God, I need your grace again Today, I am not home yet. I am not fixed yet. There are still problems in my heart. There are still problems in my attitude. There are still problems with my speech. There are still problems with my imagination, my behavior. God, I need your grace today. This is not something we repent, and so therefore we can live the rest of our life. 
It is an attitude of enjoying the presence of Christ by being the first one to acknowledge, I need your grace again today. I need to experience your life again today. And I experience Christ's closeness most profoundly in repentance. Are you arguing with me? Okay, let me, let me give you the, the, how that argument would go if you're still awake and you want to argue with me. Here's how the argument again. You say, no, no, no. I experience Christ's closeness, closeness, Christmas, closeness most profoundly when, I, when I'm dialed in. I've kicked nine out of tens of my really bad habits. I'm reading my Bible four or five times a week. I'm praying. That's when I experience God's closeness. No, those things are God's grace to you. He has granted in his closeness. We experience the closeness of Christ in our repentance. You're still arguing with me, I can tell. How, well, how do I know you're arguing with me? Because I'm one of you, I, I was, grew up in the church, I know how this goes. You say, no, 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 Greg, this is how it works. I repent of my sin so I can experience closeness with God, right? That's heresy. You experience closeness of God not because you're a good repenter. You experience closeness with God because he died on the cross. So do you have to do something to get God close to you? No, how, let me put it this way because you're not understanding and mostly because I'm not saying it clearly. How long after you have sinned and confessed does it take for God to be cool with you? So you do that. Think of that one really bad sin you don't want anybody to know about. Yeah, you're welcome. Think of that one. Okay, so you do something. You feel real bad. That's the Holy Spirit. It's called conviction. Okay, Lord, I'm sorry. I confess. That was wrong. I don't want to do that anymore. I want that about a part of my past and a part of my future. I receive your forgiveness. So that, you, you ask God for forgiveness. How long is it from that moment till God is close to you again? He never wasn't. He was close to you the whole time. He was close to you when you were preparing for your sin. He was close to you while you were sinning. And he was close to you when you were confessing. It doesn't need to be like a week off of the bad sins for you to be close to Christ again. He was close to you the whole time. The question is, will I prepare my heart to receive him by repenting? Because he paid the price on the cross so I could be close to him even though I'm not home yet. This is good news. This is what we call the gospel. That God who is holy could commune with those who aren't home yet because of the work of Christ on the cross. Be prepared. Turn from our sinful ways quick so our hearts can once again receive the closeness of Jesus and live in the good news of the reality of his forgiveness and his new life. Prepare the Savior's coming. Grace of John the Baptist gives us an opportunity and the message of John the Baptist is repentance. Finally, the focus of the messenger is this, Jesus. Think about the last time you went to a play and you have somebody who operates a spotlight. Have you ever seen one of those spotlight deals? Pretty cool. If you are watching the person operating the spotlight, the spotlight operator is doing something wrong. Isn't that true? If all of a sudden the spotlight's all over the room, you're like, what is your problem, dude? And then you're watching, what are you doing? Or if the spotlight operator turns the light around, and shows himself. The amazing spotlighter here for your service. Turns it back. What's the, what's the spotlighter's job? Shine the light on someone else. That's the whole job is to not be noticed. And this is precisely what John the Baptist's job was. John 3, verse 30 says this. Let me start in verse... Let me see. Yeah, I'm going to start in verse 25. 
John 3, beginning verse 25, verse 30 is up on the screen. We'll get to it in a minute. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. That's the ritual for being cleansed to be able to go to the temple. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and everyone's going over to him, talking about Jesus. And John answered this, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from heaven. There's a whole sermon right there. What have you got right now? Have you gotten anything? No. You've been given everything. Verse 28. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. The one who has the, who, the, one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, that is Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. The culmination of John's work is Jesus. The culmination of everything John was doing, that God was doing in John the Baptist, was Christ. The way he knew his job was done right is this verse. He must increase, I must decrease. The focus of the forerunner is Jesus. The goal of the forerunner is Jesus. The point of the forerunner is Jesus. His goal was to see how great Jesus, people could recognize Jesus for who he was, that they might forget who John was. And John's wish was answered. He was arrested by Herod. He was thrown into a prison and essentially forgotten. He was going to be left there to rot. A young woman on a whim, having pleased Herod with her dancing, asked for a reward of John the Baptist's head. So this man of God lost his head because of an entertainer in Herod's court. His death was futile. His death was meaningless. His death provided no inspiration for his followers. His death offered no significant memories of him. He is powerless, uh, susceptible to the whims of a dancer in Herod's court. So obviously his life was a waste, wasn't it? It would have been if his life purpose was his life. But since his life purpose was bound up in Christ, his life was not a waste. His life displayed the glory of God himself. He must increase I must decrease. The focus of the forerunner is Christ. There's a couple of more verses to look at. Look at Luke 3, verse 15. This won't be on the screen if you want to follow along. You're going to have to actually find it in your copy of the Scripture. What time is it? We should be done by Christmas. Verse 15 of Luke chapter 3. As the people were in expectation... And all their hearts, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether or not he might be the Christ. John answered them and said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other ex exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Herod, who had been reproved by John 
about his marriage to his brother's wife. Yeah, that's weird. Herod added this to all the other evils he had done. He locked up John in prison. When all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized was praying, the heavens were opened, the Holy Spirit descended on him in a dove, and he heard a voice from heaven, the Father, saying, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Look at the verse uh, 15. As people were in expectation. What's that word? Expectation. Let me just say it this way. Expectation is the enemy of finding Christ. Expectation is the enemy of finding Christ. All these folks wanted John to be the Christ because he seemed to fit the bill of political revolutionary. And if we have in our mind, here's what Christ must be for me to receive Christ, that is the enemy of us finding Christ. We have to receive Jesus as Jesus is, the redeemer of our souls that have been destroyed by sin. So you have to ask yourself, what do you want from Christ? Your expectations of Christ can function as an enemy to you actually finding him. If you want something from Jesus, other than forgiveness of sins and eternal life with him forever, you may be sorely disappointed. If you need something healed, if you need a bill paid, a car fixed, a friendship restored, I don't know what it might be. You say, God, if you will answer this prayer, if you will give me this request, then I will finally believe in you. That is the enemy of finding Christ because what Christ is offering is forgiveness of your sin. And when we have expectations, here's what God must be for me to receive him, those function of enemies of me finding him. Look at John's verse again in John 3.30. He must increase, I must decrease. When unfortunately in the modern culture and in many of our hearts, I want to find Christ so that I can increase. There's plenty of people you can turn on any TV or radio station and you turn on the dial and they're going to tell you 10 steps to how God will give you everything you've ever wanted. Is that what that looks like? So I'm trying not to get riled up. Deep cleansing breath. Some of you go, get riled up, get riled up. No, it's Christmas, I'm going to be happy. No, we're good. What are the expectations? But some of the, well, I never listen to those kooks on the TV and on the radio that tell me that. I don't believe in any of that stuff. But you've got this, but we all do this. Every one of us do this. There's something God isn't doing, and we don't understand it. It drives us nuts that God won't do what we told him to do. Because what we're asking for seems terribly reasonable, doesn't it? God, if this is true, and you are who you say you are, and you have the ability to fix this problem, since you're not fixing this problem, obviously you aren't who I think you are. And God would reply this way. No, actually what it reveals is you're not God, I am. Everything God does is for good, but sometimes it's hard for us to see exactly what he's up to. He must increase. I must decrease. The focus of the forerunner is Christ, and the focus of those who respond to the forerunner is Christ. If I have found Christ, I have found all I will ever need. Okay, last verse to look at. Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. And I'm being serious. I won't turn to another one. Maybe. (laughs) 
Okay, I already see the other one. I'm going to turn to you. Truly I say to you, among those born among women, this is Jesus speaking about John the Baptist. Truly I say to you, among those born among women, there is, has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is recognizing what John recognized, that the kingdom of heaven is all Christ all the time. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is having a forerunner attitude which says, it is all about Jesus. The entirety of my life should function as a spotlight on the person and work of Jesus Christ. But the expectations we have will often get our hearts sideways. We want the focus of our life to be on Jesus to the degree that it will benefit us. And what Jesus is saying here, John got it. Died in a, in a jail cell, forgotten, powerless. In fact, in the scripture, I can think of no other more meaningless death than John's. And God is saying, he is the greatest in the kingdom of God because he doesn't need a glorious death. He doesn't need influence or power or magnitude. He just simply needs Jesus. But our expectations mess this all up. Look at verse 16, same uh, chapter, Matthew chapter 11. So it counts as the same uh, cross-reference. So got that going for me. Jesus said this, What shall I compare this generation? And by this, he meant that generation that he was talking to. And by this, he also means you guys um, and me. Keep myself in it. It is like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. John came neither eating or drinking and he said, he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and they say, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners. This is what our expectations will do when our focus is off of what Jesus actually came to do. They looked at John and said, this guy is kook, e, crazy, demon-possessed nut job because he is calling sinners to repent. And then they look at Jesus who says, I will make my, my, my uh, place of residence among the center, sinners, identify, my, identify myself with the sinners, and those same people then point at Jesus and say, what a drunk, what a glutton. His friends are sinners. Because they didn't want repentance, and they didn't want to be forgiven of their sin. They wanted Jesus to give them all they ever wanted. So the focus of their attention was not on Christ. The focus of their attention was on their own agenda, and as a result, they missed Christ. Does the Savior's coming benefit me? Does the Savior's coming benefit me? That's actually not the point. The point is this. The Savior has come. The point of the Savior is coming is not my personal life benefit. The point of the Savior coming is, in fact, just the Savior. And it turns out he's the kind of Savior that saves sinners like you and me. But if you need Jesus and prosperity, if you need Jesus and a perfect family, if you need Jesus and perfect children, if you need Jesus and whatever else, you will miss Jesus every time. But if you will take J Jesus and a jail cell and getting beheaded, no one caring, you just might find him. The point of the Savior coming is Christ. Prepare. The Savior is coming. Three quick questions and we'll close. Are you prepared? 
Now, I don't know if you call, consider yourself a believer or you don't consider yourself a believer. There's probably both folks here, but the question I would ask you is, are you prepared? Jesus, come back anytime. I was hoping before the end of this message. Thankfully, I wrote to the end. But are you ready? If you're in Christ when he returns, thankfully, you will find your presence with him with great joy and gladness. But every single one of us will have a sense on Christ's return. We go, oh, man, just had my eye flub all a little bit. That will be true. Doesn't mean we're not going home. Doesn't mean he won't take us home. But there will be a sense for every single one of us when he comes say, wow, I had my focus on, on those things. Wow. Well, man, what was I thinking? If you're in Christ, the way you are prepared is to start fostering by the grace of the Holy Spirit and by the work of the Scripture an attitude of repentance. Calling God to convict of the sin you need to walk away from and the disobedience you need to walk away from and say, what does my life look like if my life is no longer has the spotlight shining on me, but instead my life has the spotlight shining on Christ? Am I prepared? Are you not in Christ? Can you not think of a time where you turn to Christ for forgiveness of sins? Then your preparation is turn to Christ for forgiveness today and don't wait. There's no time. We have never been closer. What does preparation look like? It looks like repentance and faith. Repentance says, I want to turn from my life and instead turn to Christ's life and I trust him. He will forgive me and he will give me everything I need to, to have in order to walk with Christ. I can turn from sin and disobedience and turn to Christ in faith knowing he will do the work to make me more like Christ. What do I need in my life? What step do I need to take to act on my repentance? What safeguards do I need to put in my life that give me less opportunity for the sins that hold me back? What kind of accountabilities do I need in my life to have an opportunity to worship God through prayer and in being in his scripture? What does that look like to turn from my sin and repentance, turn to Christ in faith and walk towards him? What does it look like to walk away from the tsunami of my life focusing on me and instead run to Christ for hope and change? Finally, why would we want to be prepared for Christ's return? Here's a final question. I don't know how you would answer this. I mean, I know how you would answer it if you were answering it out loud, so don't answer it out loud. Here's the question. Do you love Jesus? Of course, we're going to say, of course we love Jesus, and we should. But the only motivation that will last in a life of repentance and faith is a greater and greater love for Christ. So for example, you say, well, I'm going to turn from my sin to turn to Christ because then everything's going to go good for me, right? That's not a great motivator because when I look at John the Baptist's life, it went from bad to worse to worse to losing his head. That's a bad motivation. You say, well, if I turn from Christ, uh, from my sin uh, to Christ, then uh, thankfully that will save me from all the, the bad effects that sin often has in my life. Well, that may be the case, but that's a motivation that won't last. The only motivation that will last is when in our hearts, God, by his spirit, gives us an increasing love for this Savior. Are you prepared?